One of the biggest jobs in Washington is chief of staff to the president of the United States. Joshua Bolton treats us to an inside look at life as chief of staff. He served in the role from 2006 to 2009, which are years that included a lot of very early mornings thanks to the early rising President Bush. If you're working directly for the president, as I was as chief of staff, he got to his desk at about 6.45 every morning, pretty punctually. And he'd, he'd been already been up for an hour and a half, and he was raring to go. And if you're chief of staff, you uh, Andy Card used to get in at 5.30 in order to prepare himself to talk to the president. I, I shaved it pretty close and used to get in around 6.15, um, which gave me a half hour to prepare, but I, I was scrambling for that half hour before I would go down and visit with the president first thing in the morning. Josh's career with President Bush began a full two years before he was even elected president. We chat with Josh about his most frightening time in D.C., why laughter was the key to making the job feel less heavy, and how he decompressed after leaving the White House. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Institute. What happens when you cross the 43rd president, late-night sketch comedy, and compelling conversation? The Strategerist, a podcast born from the word strategery, which was coined by SNL and embraced by the George W. Bush administration. We highlight the American spirit of leadership and compassion through thought-provoking conversations. And we're reminded that the most effective leaders are the ones who laugh. We're joined today by the Harley motorcycle riding bass player for the rock band The Compassionates, who also happened to be White House Chief of Staff, and now he's the CEO of the Business Roundtable. I think we can call him the most interesting man in Washington. Josh Bolton, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. And we're also co-hosted today by Holly Kuzmich, the Executive Director of the Bush Institute. Holly, thank you again. Good afternoon. So, Josh... I remember I watched I watched a lot of TV and I try and tie everything back to TV. And the only chief of staff I can think of on TV was Leo McGarry on the West Wing. How close to Leo McGarry do you think you are, if you've even watched the show? Uh, we did watch the show because the show was on during the 2000 campaign. And so we all watched it. Uh, and when the administration started in 2001, uh, about... Maybe just a few months into the year, the whole cast of the West Wing came to came to see us. Oh, cool! At the West Wing, and they, you know, they filtered around and partnered up with their with their real counterparts. Oh, wow! Um, at the time, I was deputy chief of staff, and the deputy chief of staff on that show was named Josh something, and and I had a lot of people say to me. Um, Gosh, that's you know, there's that show on TV where they're even using your name, and <laughs> people not realizing that um, I was life imitating art rather than <laughs> rather than vice versa. Um, they, I thought the show was was pretty accurate. It, uh, you know, they had a lot of writers who had experience from the Clinton administration in working in the West Wing. And so they they kind of captured some of the essence of what it's what it's like to be in the White House. Um, the chief of staff role, not so much. Um, I think I think Andy Card was was closer to that avuncular model that they had on oh, the show than I was when I became chief of staff. How would you describe your style as chief of staff? 
Oh, just trying to hang on, I think. <laughs> um, I became chief of staff uh, at the beginning of, uh, after, our f- uh, after the administration had been there for five years. So Andy Card was the Iron Man of chiefs of staff. And uh, I, I had big shoes to fill in following him. So I didn't start until early 2006. Um, but I started at a, at a pretty difficult time for the administration because, in particular, because the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were going very badly and were very unpopular, um, both in, in the general population and on Capitol Hill. Um, and we were headed into an election, a midterm election season in which we knew that the, in, in large part, because of the unpopular, unpopularity of those wars, we were, we were likely to lose both the House and the Senate. So I came in at a, uh, at a pretty difficult and, and sober time, but I also came in, uh, into a, an office that was accustomed, at that point, accustomed to a very well running, White House operation where people understood their roles and, uh, and, and the, the president was, I think, comfortable with the kind of structure we had. We changed the personnel around a bit when I came in. That was part of the reason for, for bringing me in when the president did. But, um, it was, uh, I inherited a functional operation from Andy Card and, and I'd, I'd like to think we strengthened it from there. So, Josh, you mentioned that when you came in in 06, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were at a critical point. You then had the financial crisis a few years later. People talk about the weight of the world being on the president's shoulders. But what did the weight of the world? How how did you feel that? Did that feel like you had the weight of the world on you, too? And how do you manage that as a chief of staff? Uh, you know, I had a I had a difficult and serious job, but I, I never felt the weight of the world on my my shoulders. I've heard other chief, former chiefs of staff say that. I've heard them say it's the worst job in Washington. James Baker is, I think, famous for saying that you you got a target painted on your back. Um, I think Rahm Emanuel said, you know, he there there was a show about chiefs of staff, a, a documentary, and he he looks straight into the camera and says, "It's hell." <laughs> and I, my experience was different. I. Uh, it, it was a really hard job and, and the stakes were very important. Um, but I, I never felt a great burden. You know, I was, I was probably there at the office, typically 16 hours a day. Your car was always there when I got in and when I left. Yeah. Well, if you work for President Bush, you got to get in early. Uh, and I'm not a I'm not an early bird. I'm a night owl. No bass player is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You can't be you can't be in a rock and roll band and 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 be an early bird. Um, but the president is an early bird. So uh, um, I was in the in the preceding five years when I was deputy chief of staff and budget director. Uh, I was able to you know slack off and barely make it in for the 7.30 a.m. senior staff meeting. But if you're working directly for the president, as I was as chief of staff, he got to his desk at about 6.45 every morning, 
pretty punctually. And he'd, he'd been already been up for an hour and a half and he was raring to go. And if you're chief of staff, you, uh, Andy Card used to get in at 5.30 in order to prepare himself to talk to the president. I, I shaved it pretty close and used to get in around 6.15, wow. um, which gave me a half hour to prepare. But I, I was scrambling for that half hour before I would go down and visit with the president first thing in the morning. Um, but I, uh, you know, even with that, and and I rarely went home before, well, 10 o'clock at night would have been an early night. Um, even with that, I never felt oppressed. And I I genuinely think I've, every, every day when I, you know, came through the gates of the West Wing um, in, a, in a nice armored vehicle dri- being driven by Secret Service agents, I might add, uh, I, I felt lucky. I, I, I felt like this, you know, this is a, an extraordinary privilege. And, uh, I think if you bring that attitude to work every day, it's, it's hard to feel oppressed. Most important thing though, was president Bush's attitude because I saw him, uh, you know, first thing in the morning and last thing before he headed up to the residence every day through some really tough times. Uh, and I saw him disappointed. Uh, I saw him mad plenty of times. Uh, I never saw him discouraged or pessimistic. And, and if you got a, if you got a leader who brings that kind of attitude to the office every day, that affects everybody in the building. Did you feel that way even during the financial crisis, which was a really tough and, yeah. you know, changing period every single day? Yeah, the financial crisis was, uh, you know, you know, I, I get asked periodically, what, what was the scariest moment for you in the White House? And I was, I was deputy chief of staff and therefore acting chief of staff on 9-11 um, in the White House. And people assume I'm going to say that. And 9-11 was, of course, by far the most horrifying um, uh, tragedy that, you know, anybody's encountered in government in, in, in a very long time. So, uh, so it, 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 that was, you know, that you can't, there's nothing more horrifying than that day in my memory. But in terms of just being frightened and not sure whether we were doing the right thing. Uh, I got to say it was not the first year of the presidency in 2001. It was the last year in 2008. And, even, and the, in fact, the last months of the presidency when we were going through the financial crisis and were on the precipice of um, what could have been worse than the Great Depression – uh, and weren't sure that we were doing the right things to to try to prevent it. It was it was a lot of improvisation and direction changes. Um, so that was a, that was an unusually tough period. And um, President President Bush was the same. And you know we we had lots of light moments. Um, and he he. He always took it upon himself not to – if he felt afflicted, he always made sure that uh, people didn't see that. 
and he he was the he was the comforter in chief mm-hmm. during a lot of that. I I remember one meeting in particular um, when the the Treasury Secretary and the Fed Chairman and the President of the New York Fed uh, asked me for time to come in and see the President right in the midst of the crisis as the markets were melting down. Uh, and they were coming in to ask the president to authorize them to take a proposal to the Hill for an appropriation of $750 billion. Okay, let me, let me repeat that. <laughs> wow. That's billion with a B. $750 billion. The Congress, the, the proposal was that we need to ask the Congress to appropriate that money. And what was it for? It was to bail out the banks that caused the problem in the first place. Um, so a really tough ask and a very tough spot to be in. And President Bush asked, you know, some really good questions of the folks as they were making their presentation. And then he, then he turned to the Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke, who was, who was a professor at Princeton before he came to work in government and had written his doctoral dissertation on the Great Depression. And the president said, Ben, what what's likely to happen if we don't do this? And Ben said, Mr. President, it could be as bad or worse than the Great Depression. And there was silence in the room. And the president said, well, I, I think that makes it easy. And after that meeting, uh, he, you know, he made his decision. He told them to go ahead, take the proposal to Capitol Hill. Uh, he went around. The, he didn't slink out of the room with, you know, with his shoulders hunched or anything like that. Uh, despite knowing that he was taking on board something that was going to make him deeply unpopular with most of America, including the, the relatively smallish percentage of people that still supported him. Uh, but he didn't slink out of the room. He went around individually to each of the people that were there presenting to the Treasury Secretary, to the Fed Chairman and others, uh, and he took a moment with each of them and privately and said, uh, we'll get through this. This will work. Go home and get some rest. And then we walked back into the Oval Office, and he he turned to the it was the communications director Dan Bartlett and me, and he turned to us and you know with a little bit of a smile said, "If this is Roosevelt or Hoover, for damn sure I'm going to be Roosevelt." Right. So you, um, in the midst of the financial crisis, that was what six eight weeks before the presidential election of two thousand and eight. The administration was also working on a transition plan for whoever was going to come into office that was put into place by President yeah, Bush and Holly, you. We, yeah, we had a pretty good idea eight weeks before the who election was who was coming. But you had that going on, too, just in the sense of um, trying to be prepared and prepare the next administration for that. So a lot was on your plate. Yeah, there were, you know, normally on, on the way out, uh, the last few months are of an administration, you're running on fumes and you're, everybody's packing up and um, they're wrapping up the last few initiatives that you want to, you want to get taken care of. Uh, and if it's a responsible administration, which most have been, you're doing your best to prepare the next 
crew um, to to come into a to a reasonably good situation. We didn't have that luxury, mm-hmm. um, but we were determined to execute as good a transition as we possibly could. And that that came from an instruction that President Bush gave me in early 2008, so almost a year before the actual end of the administration. He he said to me, "We're we're headed into a presidential transition." Um, really for the first time in modern history when the homeland of the United States is under threat. And it's a moment of vulnerability for the United States. Um, normally that might not matter that um, you're, you know, the, the new folks aren't, aren't really well established for the first few weeks or months of the administration. But with the country actually under physical threat, um, he said, we've got a responsibility to do a, a really effective transition, especially on the national security side. So we started to work uh, actually in the summer of 2008. We started to work with both campaigns to help them prepare their transitions. Um, and uh, that for the White House, uh, the effort was led by... Uh, a young man named Blake Gottesman, who had been the president's personal aide um, and then went off to business school. And uh, he had he had just graduated from business school and was on a yacht somewhere in the Aegean <laughs> Sea. And he was he was planning to go off. He had a great job going to work for um, a private, a nice private equity house in Boston. Uh, and, uh, I reached him on the yacht and, uh, because un- unfortunately our, our long-term time deputy chief of staff for operations, Joe Hagan, who's, who's terrific, um, uh, wasn't able to stay for the last six months of the administration. And it's the deputy chief for operations who really has to run the transition. So I reached uh, Blake on the yacht and I, I said, your country needs you. And he said, aye, aye. And, and he showed up and he did a, he did a brilliant job managing the transition. And to this day, um, the, uh, there are a lot of folks in the Obama administration who will say nothing nice about the Bush administration, but they will all say that they were, they were deeply appreciative and benefited from the, um, the professional and effective way that we that we tried to do the transition to the Obama administration. Country before party. Always, always. And that, you know, that was uh, uh, George W. Bush is is a is a heck of a politician and a, and a partisan, you know, a, a true Republican partisan. Um, but there were, there was never any doubt uh, on any single day that I worked in the White House that uh, that country came and principle came ahead of party. And uh, this was one of those examples. And that, I mean, the, the president gave me the instruction to start the transition uh, before we were pretty sure who was going to win the, uh, win the election. But it, by the end of it, it was pretty clear. And he didn't, he, he didn't say take the foot, foot off the gas. He said, put it on the gas. In particular, because we were we were going to be having a president who did not have a lot of governing experience, 
and uh, and there would be people around him who uh, who were pretty fresh to it, and um, we had a responsibility to do to do our the best job we could to prepare them, especially for their national security responsibilities. One of the things he touched on earlier I'd like to get back to a little bit is President Bush's sense of humor and thus your sense of humor as as one of his leading deputies. How did that sense of humor permeate the White House? What what effect did that have on everybody? You know, I uh, um, when when I left the White House, the the the, uh, the photographer's office, there's an official photographer's office at the White House. And there are, I think, at least three or four photographers whose only job is to photograph the president and who uh, and when he's not and, you know, in his residence or when President Bush wasn't at the ranch or at Camp David, he's photographed constantly. They take thousands of photographs a day. Anyway, they put together a book for me of, you know, photos from my time that I that I and actually it's a whole series of notebooks uh, from my time uh, working in the administration. And the thing I noticed uh as I was, I was showing the notebook to a friend was how many photos in the Oval Office were laughing. Mm. And, uh, that came from the top. The president kept it light. He, he took the issues very seriously. He took his decision making responsibilities very seriously. He did not take himself seriously. And, uh, and that, that created a lot of, a lot of light moments and, you know, you know, plenty of, plenty of silly potty humor and, <laughs> and, uh, and other stuff. I, I remember, I remember, you know, stuff like that Blake, whom I mentioned, he was, he started out as the personal aide to the president and, and he would do stuff like, um, knowing that President Bush always insisted on being responsible for taking care of Barney the dog. He, he, he went out and bought one of those fake dog poops and, and put it in the middle of the rug in the Oval <laughs> Office. Fake, of course. Fake. Yeah, fake. But the president didn't know that, so he was headed to the bathroom to get some towels to, to clean it up. Because <laughs> he, he felt strongly it was his dog, it was his responsibility. He was going to clean up after the dog? He was going to clean up the dog's poop on the Oval Office right. rug. Yep, he was, ra- he was raised right. Uh, but there, there was a lot of that kind of stuff. And... Um, and we worked with a lot of funny people, and the the president enjoyed good humor. So it uh, uh, back to Holly's question that that's a that's a big part of what made what made the job made the job less heavy for all of us was that we we laughed a lot. Uh, let's talk about you for a second. You probably don't want to, but how did you take? <laughs> your experience and lessons you learned into your private sector career afterwards. And how did you think about what you wanted to do next after such a intense eight plus years working for George W. Bush? Well, I mean, the most important thing is I wanted to take a hell of a long nap because I, (laughs) because I was, I was 10 years sleep deprived, Mm -hmm. especially those last three. Yeah. Because I, I worked all eight years in the Bush white house. And then two years before that, I was the policy director of the campaign. So None of, none of those jobs was a light job, but especially the last three years as chief of staff, 
um, having to keep the president's schedule and then do my own work at night um, uh, was really crimped the sleep. And I, I was a lot tireder than I realized I was. I mean, I, I think it was a full year, um, before I, I was restored to, you know, physical and, and mental health. Um, so my main, my main objective when I, uh, when I left the white house was, um, get, get rested and, and get healthy. And, uh, I found a great way to do that, which was um, I was invited by my alma mater, Princeton, to go to go teach there, which turned out to be a much harder job than I expected. But <laughs> but you could actually you know like sleep. And no seven thirty classes. No, 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 no. I I I scheduled no class before eleven a.m. I that was one of the, that was one of the prerequisites to my agreeing to do it was that. No class that I was teaching would start before 11 a.m. Um, and uh, that was a great way to uh, both refresh myself and to reflect on the experience that I'd had and and try to take away some lessons for the balance of, of my career. And, and most of the lessons I took away were... Um, were lessons that I learned by observing how President Bush handled himself and handled handled others, um, how he how he behaved as a leader. I think our final question before you we are uh, moderating our engage event tonight. Our engage at the Bush Center presented by Highland Capital Management. Our topic is Camp David tonight. So thank yeah. you for doing oh, no, that. Holly's moderating. Holly's I'm, moderating. You're participating. I'm just. A, I'm I'm sorry. Just a, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm just telling good. stories. I'm just eye candy for this thing. <laughs> well, before we let you run off and do that, what is one topic that we as a country aren't talking about enough that you think we should be talking more about? Well, I can tell you what I think we should be talking less about. Um, <laughs> the thing I think we we should be talking more about is, and and lots of people are talking about it, but I think it's I think it's the most important thing. Um, once we've returned, I hope we've returned to civil discourse in this country, um, and I and the most important policy topic, I think, for people to talk about is how do we make sure the United States remains the most innovative nation on earth? That's our, that's our strength. That, that is our prosperity. That is our character. Um, I know the Bush Institute is, is working on a lot of elements of that. Um, uh, but, uh, but a lot of things have to come together for the United States to remain the innovative engine of the world economy. And it begins with education, which I know the the institute is uh, is focusing a lot of its effort on. Um, but uh, it's not in my in my view, it's not education in the traditional sense of you know school buildings and things like that. It's um, how do we how do we prepare people for a world in which. Um, at least in the United States, unskilled labor will be less and less in demand and technical skills will be increasingly in demand. And we, and we need to shift our way of thinking about how we, how we 
bring up our young people with the right skills for the for the modern economy because it's it's going to change um, much more rapidly, I think, than most people expect. The the kinds of changes where we're going to see over the next couple of decades, I think, are ones that have been a long time coming. And, and like many dramatic changes, they 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 come up on you very slowly, and then when they really start, they happen suddenly. That I think that's true of the computing age. And now, as we enter the the artificial intelligence age, um, I think it's going to it's going to continue to creep up on us slowly and then happen very suddenly. And, and as a country, we need to be prepared. Is that something you're seeing a lot of discussion around as in your work as, as CEO of the Business Roundtable? I am, uh, and it's and most of the most of the leaders in in the Business Roundtable, which is 200 of the 200 CEOs of some of America's largest companies, almost all of them face the same challenge of uh, finding a, a well-qualified workforce to, um, to do the jobs of the future. And, uh, and I, th- I think uh, with, with this challenge, along with many others, business has a new role to play in our society as uh, as people have lost faith in in some of the other big institutions um, in in government in uh, unfortunately in churches um, I think our business leaders need to step up and and lead um, on issues like skills training in this country in ways that they haven't in the past which makes my which makes my current job a terrific place to be uh, in the, at, at this point in the, in the twilight of my career. Josh, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Really appreciate it. And Holly, thank you as well. Thanks. Thanks, Josh. Pleasure. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to help us spread the word about The Strategist, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the major listening apps. If you're tuning in on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll find episode notes with helpful information and details you may have missed. The Strategist was produced by Ioana Pappas at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for listening.